that is a barrier again. We hit another barrier. Right, 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 right. But you have uh, a different the, approach, right? Right, right. And 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 it's you know obviously full disclosure. It's not my it's not my approach. Uh, it's definitely something that today is uh, actually very common in it. And like you know, we talked in the past is is probably the most sought after implementation of generative AI. And then a lot of people have quoted that uh, 2024 will be the year of retrieval augmented generation. Welcome to Embracing Digital Transformation, where we investigate effective change leveraging people, process, and technology. This is Darren Pulsford, Chief Solution Architect, author, and most importantly, your host. On today's episode, an introduction to Gen AI RAG models with AI Solution Architect Eduardo Alvarez from Intel. Eduardo, welcome to the show. Hey, Darren, how's it going? Hey, um, this is this is a really fascinating topic. What we're talking about today about generative AI, of course, is part of embracing generative AI. But before we dive into that, Eduardo, tell my audience a little bit about yourself. They all like to hear our backstories. So, what's your backstory, Eduardo? Sure. Yeah. Um, well, uh, actually, my background when I, I went to school uh, for uh, a degree in geophysics, I started out my career in the energy industry. Uh, as a geophysicist, uh, my first actual six months of my career were as a field geophysicist, uh, stomping geophones, designing uh, acquisition arrays uh, for um, for subsurface imaging, and uh, that was a lot of fun. Uh, very, as you can imagine, data intensive. Uh, which uh, you know, eventually after I finished my six month stint out in the field, came back into the office as a full time analyst of uh, ge geophysics data. Um, it, at my time at that first company, uh, there were a lot of data challenges. Uh, data science was still kind of a very new thing from the perspective of the modern application, more modern applications of machine learning. So um, I was very intrigued by uh, trying to solve some of our challenges using some of those technologies back then, mostly traditional ML. It was really when, right around the same time when neural networks were starting to pick up a lot. So I uh, started playing around with lower networks, made a pivot over to an energy tech startup uh, where um, I eventually ended up leading a team uh, to deliver some software as a service applications for um, for drilling optimization, uh, for geothermal and for oil and gas wells. Also uh, subsurface 3D modeling uh, using neural networks as well. Then eventually uh, came back, uh, not came back, eventually made it over to Intel uh, about uh, a year and a half ago. So it's been a great ride so far at Intel, had a phenomenal time. Uh, really uh, can't imagine a better time to be working on uh, AI. So definitely the career oh, yeah. trajectory has been uh, really fun. Uh, I always say it's like being uh, having my hand super glued to the side of a rocket because uh, you, you're like, <laughs> I, I don't know if I want to let go. Uh, there's definitely something holding me to this, you know, tying me or, or tying me to this journey that just keeps me there. Uh, it's hard to describe what it is because obviously it's very hectic every day. It's something new, very difficult to keep. Well, up exciting. To. Yeah, no, it's that yeah, adrenaline rush, course. right? Of being of on, on the front of the wave. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So really wait, great. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta tap back. Yeah, sure. yeah, you yeah, were yeah. in the field. I mean, you yes. were out digging holes in the desert. <laughs> no, well, not. A, I guess you could say. Actually, I don't know if West Texas is fully classified desert, but definitely feels. Oh yeah, like it's pretty close to desert. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so that's that kind of. So that's a big change from being out in the field digging holes to now sitting behind a desk every day. 
especially yeah. at Intel. We're we're never going to dig holes at Intel. <laughs> no, yeah, I mean that's a that's a good uh, that's a good point. Well, you know the uh, the start out there is really part of this almost like um, this when you joined the company at that time. The company was called Microseismic. Uh, you basically spent six months out in the field. Uh, to understand how to work hand in hand with the operating companies, so working with major companies like oh, Shell and Hess and and Exxon Mobil and many other smaller operators in Texas, uh, in Oklahoma and Oklahoma and New Mexico. So I was driving around, uh, going to different uh, what they call frack pads, um, and sitting in the in the truck with the different company men and interacting. It was a phenomenal experience. I was very grateful for it, and actually. Uh, my colleague today, who is my manager, uh, is one of the people I used to work with back at that company. Oh, that is hilarious! Uh, is really yeah. So we've we've uh, we've reconnected back here at Intel. We've done some really exciting and fun things both at that company and now at Intel. But so, did, did uh, that give you a better perspective being out in the field working with the data collection? Did that oh, give yeah. you a better feel for the value of the data that you were then working with back in in the office? Absolutely. I think uh, an appreciation for the data environment uh, uh, that I acquired in the field, I never thought about it that way, uh, but has kind of carried on through the trajectory of my career in AI and machine learning, because I always think back to data centric problems. And that will actually tie in very well to the rest of our conversation today. But uh, a good, a funny anecdote or a good anecdote is uh, there's this process when they're uh, um, completing a horizontal well, um, which is called uh, the uh, the perforation phase. They basically pull. They basically have these uh, this gun that goes into the horizontal of the well, and it shoots. Uh, it detonates these charges that perforate the casing, so that there's a connection uh, of fluid between the the fluid inside of the well uh, and the formation in the rock. So, one of the funny things about that was that. Uh, a lot of the analysts that I was working with in the office, through no fault of their own, had never experienced what the environment was like and understood uh, what the process was like to, uh, to, to see those charges go off, when they go off, at what point in the hydraulic fracturing process. So at times uh, when I was back as an analyst, there would be certain signals in the data, uh, certain things about the cadence of certain signals that we were seeing um, in the acquisition that were kind of anomalous and would be very frustrating or it would be hard to separate some of the signal from the fractures from those perforations and having an understanding of how that process goes on in the field really helped me kind of dig through that data in a more efficient way. So that's, uh, that was definitely, yeah. Good, sorry. That's really interesting to me because what that tells me is data scientists and people that are working with data, data analysts, they need to get out and and, and be with the subject matter experts where the data is collected. They can't just sit in their, in their cage, right? In right. the bubble. Um, right. Because there's a lot of, I guess, what is it? Tribal knowledge that goes on by being yeah. there. Right, um, right, so. right. There's absolutely institutional domain specific knowledge that uh, you can only really acquire uh, experiencing uh, the data environment firsthand. Obviously, there are cases where you can't. You can't go out and touch a neutron star. You can't go out and you no, know, well, you sit on a, on, a, on a planet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, shoot for the stars. That, right? That's right. But yeah, I mean, it's there, there's limits. But for the most part, um, in my experience in my career, the most uh, the most impactful technologies that I've seen. Um, 
be deployed into production um, have had subject matter experts in that in the domain uh, directly involved in the software development process, either directly consulting uh, at the beginning uh, or just constantly involved in kind of an iterative process. So and it's also why our, why our users are there too. Users are very important in you know, because they are the ones directly interfacing with the data environment most of the time. This brings us to kind of what we want to talk about today, uh, which sure. is, and, and the whole the whole series we've been talking about generative AI. Generative AI really kind of broke down some barriers between the end user, right, or the person generating and wanting the data and the data scientists and data ops and all that stuff by moving it closer, I think, to the end user. Um, but there's some problems with generative AI as well, right? Right, right. Absolutely. I think uh, when I talk to folks about why, uh, you know, doing a little bit of brainstorming or trying to explain to family members or folks like, why now generative AI has kind of been the proof point of AI and machine learning in general. When I started working in machine learning, which really wasn't that long ago in terms of, you know, like a full, you know, some of the careers that uh, some of the major, you know, leading researchers have had in the field, uh, you know, just six, six, seven years ago, we had, um, nobody believed in the technology. It was like pulling teeth, trying to make, convince people to use it. it, it everybody always claimed the, the black box kind of paradox and say, oh, I don't believe in it. it's a black box. It's non-deterministic. Uh, we need something that, you know, we can, you know, have proper, uh, it's predictable or you understand. It still you know, is, a, it answer. still is indeterministic. Uh, right. Exactly. But what is the, what is the pro what, what's changed? And it's, I think it's the modality that's changed. It's the way okay. that people interact with it uh, because uh, language and specifically text is uh, such a, common uh, and, 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 and safe and, and familiar environment to interact with data and with machines um, in general, I think it has made people feel more comfortable with the idea uh, that, that these systems are more trustworthy. Uh, there's a definitely, it has a lot to do with obviously the data that these systems are trained on. Uh, they're trained on human created data for the most part. Therefore, the way they interact with you, you know, makes you feel like you're interacting with a human. I was talking to some, somebody the other day, the timing's great of generative AI in this modality, because if you ever, you know, when you're sitting in Thanksgiving with family or you're having, out, having beers with friends or whatever, and so there's like a, a debate topic, what do most of us do? Let's go to Google. Google. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. we already had this search answer modality or, or mechanism kind of baked into us. We already trusted it. And now we've just, you know, up-leveled it. Uh, well, I also think yeah. the pandemic had a lot to do with this too. Of course. Because the pandemic kind of uh, introverted all of us. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> yeah, <horrible>. sure. <laughs> right? And I watch my kids, they communicate with texting each other. Boom, boom, all day yeah. long, right? They, they text you. So they're very used to this um, language uh, or use of, of natural language to interact with each other uh, on text. So when Gen AI came in with just text, not even speaking yet, it was natural. Um, it's a natural interface that we all uh, work with. So I think you're right. That, that really broke down some of the barriers to AI. But you talked about modality. All the big, you know, Chat GPT, Claude, um, oh, what is uh, a Bard? Mm -hmm. um, 
they're all public. They're all public clouds, right? They're general right. knowledge type of, of, of things. A lot of businesses still don't have the Gen AI policies. Some do that say you can't use it at all, which is ridiculous. Right. Um, but isn't there some fear of data going into a public Gen AI, a public cloud? It goes back to the public cloud conversation that we had 10 years ago. Right, right, exactly. And I, and I think, uh, you know, this brings us to our topic uh, that you mentioned at, at the beginning, which is, uh, you know, we uh, we have mechanisms uh, through which we can, in, you know, add additional context about private data or institutional data uh, so that we can further augment the interaction with those models uh, through particular, in this case, the modality of, of text, right, and, 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 and natural language. Uh, well, well, wait, wait, yeah. stop there, there for a second before... So tr what I've heard before is I need to go train my own model on my own data. Right. So that's expensive though, right? Because that takes a lot of time and uh, resources. I got to go buy, you know, GPUs to do all my training. So I, I know about that. I've heard about that. And I have a lot of customers that are like going, we'll download the Llama 2 model we'll find, and we'll train it up even more with our own data. But the cost is huge and the time commitment is large, too. Um, that is a barrier again. We hit another barrier. Right, 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 right. But you have uh, a different the, approach, right? Right, right. And, and, and it's, you know, obviously full disclosure, it's not my, it's not my approach. Uh, it's definitely something that today is uh, actually very common in it. And like, you know, we talked in the past is, is probably the most sought after implementation of generative AI. And then a lot of people have quoted that uh, 2024 will be the year of retrieval augmented generation. So, uh, you know, what is retrieval augmented generation um, and the process through which we can embed some of this institutional knowledge into these systems? Um, if you think about uh, leveraging a large language model on its own uh, as a you know the back end to a chatbot, realistically you're only going to have access to the knowledge that it's been previously trained on, and potentially not necessarily in the amount of detail that you'd like, because obviously it's trained on a ridiculous amount of data, these massive corpus um, and 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 uh, these incredibly large data sets, and it's not going to be particularly talented uh, in any specific domain or anything like that. It's um, just so general, you, it's general knowledge, right? Really what you get out of a very large language model that has not been fine-tuned or has not been instruction tuned is a very strong, very strong language modeling capabilities, you know, for the most so part. So it can and understand so you get, what you're asking, basically. Right. It can model language. Uh, once you get into very, very high parameter counts for the most part, for getting, you know, well past the 70 billion, some, you know, you do get a lot more, um, I guess you could say zero shot capabilities, which means like, uh, you're able to get more out of the model without introducing additional context or examples. Like zero shot prompting is like when you is like for example simple straightforward Q and A. You know what is, uh, you know what what uh, you know, give me a recipe for a uh, chocolate cake, right? That is zero shot. Uh, if I were to introduce an example of how I want my answer structured or an example of different ingredients that typically go into a chocolate cake, uh, then that would take me a further step and you know we'd be adding knowledge and context to the model. But in this case, once you get past those large parameter counts, you start to have 
better zero-shot capabilities. But when we're working with the models that most people are going to be working with today, uh, not a lot of people have the infrastructure to support uh, massive models at the 180 plus, 100 billion parameter plus. Uh, or, or trillion, uh, right? Supposedly, ChatGPT4 has a trillion. Supposedly. Un, un, unverified, but yes, yes, exactly. And um, yeah, so in terms of your ability to um, you know, circumvent the, the need to fine-tune a model, uh, with a lot of your own data on a lot of infrastructure, potentially, uh, you could use a tool like Retrieve Augmented Generation. Um, and Retrieve Augmented Generation uh, is basically the process of uh, being able to access uh, using tools like, for example, uh, techniques like similarity search, uh, be able to take a user's prompt and use that prompt to search a, a private knowledge base for information that is relevant to that user's prompt combine it before providing it to the large language model so that that large language model now has additional context uh, about that user's question. So, um, yeah, go ahead. Okay, so I, I, when you said that, it thought in my mind it came up, this is almost like having a, a library of books mm -hmm. and a librarian that's been there for 100 years. <laughs> and <laughs> right. Um, which as a kid, I, that's how I thought my elementary school librarian was, right? She knew where all the <laughs> books were. Right. So it's me going and asking her a question, right? Um, I'm asking you yeah. a question and she can say, the answer is this, and you can go find the book over here and read it for yourself. That's how, is that kind of what a RAG model is? Uh, kind of. I mean, uh, the the best way that, I guess the one of the, one of the clarifications I'd make is that uh, at, at, at this level, with a, if you're just taking a model off the shelf, like a, a pre-trained model off the shelf, let's say uh, a seven billion llama, llama two model, and you're pairing it with uh, with RAG, with that retrieval mechanism, and adding that context, really you're only depending on llama for the that llama model for the most part for its language modeling capabilities, right? For the most part, okay. Uh, you're wanting it to understand the context that you're providing it and the user's question in order to in order to provide. A, a what I call an aligned response. So alignment, when you speak about when, when in the, within the context of large language models and these applications, is basically how, how, um, how close is the output to the intended uh, to the intended or expected output that the user, or the, the, gotcha. the, okay. so the user expects right. when they provide the input. So like, is it doing the thing that I expect it to do? Right. right. Yeah, that makes sense. So if you think about fine tuning, if you fine tune a model, you're uh, you're aligning it. If you instruction tune a model, you're aligning it to a particular domain, a particular use case. Um, retrieval augmented generation is a type of alignment uh, where you're not you're not perturbing the weights of the model necessarily. Right. Uh, you might fine tune and use RAG. But in this case, if you're only using a pre-trained model in RAG, what you're doing, where you're doing is circumventing that alignment process that would potentially take place during the fine tuning phase and just leveraging the context to align the model. Does that, does that make sense? It, it does. So that, so the, the, the rag, or uh, the, the um, data that I gave it in my rag mm -hmm. is helping to align the model based off the questions that I'm asking because it gives context. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That to me, that makes sense. So practical use of this, I can, so let's talk about my podcast, for example. This is going to be episode 186. Nice. And I write a blog and I've got transcripts for all this. 
I could put all of my transcripts into a rag. Mm -hmm. I can use Llama 2 or Mistral or one of, or Falcon, one of the other ones. And now I can ask that large language model things about my podcast. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Like how many yes. times did Eduardo come on the podcast? Right. right. It should say one. So it should far. Say one too. <laughs> and, and then it'll probably right. say, but you should have them on a lot more. And then I'll know that <laughs> Eduardo helped train the model. Right. Um, no. So, it, that, so that's right. what I can get out of this. Right. It, it will give, right. it will give me information about, about my podcast. Cause that was the context Absolutely. that I gave it. Absolutely. And a lot of those like applications are typically called like a chat with video or chat with PDF um, is kind of like what those are called. So, for example, if you take a YouTube video and you you extract its you know the the captions or the transcript, uh, and then you basically chunk think about chunking up that video and attaching a timestamp. Then what you do is you put all of that into your knowledge base, and then based on a user's question, you're going to retrieve it. But for example, you could also retrieve uh, metadata about that specific chunk that you're retrieving from your from your um, database in order so that the user could not only uh, go in and find your answer, but also source where that answer came from and then go to the correct video and potentially interact with that snippet of, I don't know, five seconds, right, of, of, of text or, or content. Thanks, Eduardo. And tune in next week for part two of our interview with Eduardo on generative AI and RAG models. Thank you for listening to Embracing Digital Transformation today. If you enjoyed our podcast, Give it five stars on your favorite podcasting site or YouTube channel. You can find out more information about Embracing Digital Transformation at embracingdigital.org. Until next time, go out and embrace the digital revolution.